Coming up on the Life is a Festival podcast. And so I definitely talk to all my people all the time, like about like if there's, if you can't handle something, like call, you know, and we'll bring someone in who can handle. I always, it, it's it's very firm in, I would say in my herbal teachings is, you know, there's no faking it till you make it. That's how you hurt people. That works in like, that works in marketing and like with influencers and stuff, but not in, not in medicine. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, ethics is like my core is like our, our boundaries, our limitations and, and ethics of making sure that people are cared for and not being hurt because of our ego thinking that we can treat somebody. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is Eamon Armstrong, your host of the Life is a Festival podcast. Join me for a series of conversations exploring our collective wisdom to inspire a bold courage for life. Today on the podcast... I am talking to Sarah Wu. Sarah Wu is one of the co-founders of Envision Festival in Costa Rica. Sarah is also an herbalist and a modern witch. Now, this is super awesome to me because I didn't really know much about modern witchcraft. I didn't really know about it as a movement for community and um, herbal medicine and feminine empowerment, but also gender balance. We get into a lot today. Sarah got involved in herbalism when she was about 19, and she found her way to Costa Rica. She now lives there, and she's one of the co-founders of Envision Festival there. On the episode today, we talk about herbalism and the integrated medical program at Envision, which includes what I thought of as kind of your typical festival medic. Additionally, the herbalists there, and also the Zendo Project, which is Psychedelic First Aid. I actually volunteered with the Zendo Project and wrote an article about psychedelic first aid back in 2015 at Envision. So shout out to Zendo. The work you do is amazing. We'll talk a little bit about Zendo as well today. A big chunk of the conversation, however, is about this program of the Village Witches, which is something that Sarah's been spearheading for the past couple of years. And within that, we talk about the Red Tent Movement. We talk about the Sacred Fire. We talk about women's safe spaces at festivals. We talk about permaculture. We get into a lot of stuff about uh, community design and some of what Sarah has been prototyping down in Costa Rica. And it's really cool. I learned a lot from this conversation. Um, Then later on, we get into the history of witchcraft and why there's a resurgence of modern witchcraft. Um, And finally, we'll end the episode talking about the local context of Costa Rica and the festival there. And I was curious as to whether the Catholic Costa Ricans would have a problem with the witches. And it turns out that, first of all, it's a lot about framing, because there's, there's there are cultural traditions that go by a different name there that are very much in alignment with what we would call witchcraft in English. And actually, it, it isn't the Catholics who had a problem with the village witches. It was actually the evangelicals. Isn't that fascinating? And at the very end of the episode, we just tied all off with Sarah discussing with me the eight types of capital, which was a model that I hadn't really heard of before. And I think I'm going to take it into my life because... Life is a festival, only to the wise. So let's get a little more wisdom and live a little more festively. 
Well, I am here with Sarah Wu. I'm, I'm actually not here. She is in Costa Rica, and I'm in my home in San Francisco. So this is a remote interview, uh, and I am just so excited about the conversation we have coming up today. So thanks so much for being on the Life is a Festival podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So the Life is a Festival podcast is all about taking life lessons from festival culture and bringing them into the world and helping the audience and our collective community up-level our lives through the lessons we learn in festival culture. Mm -hmm. And I was thrilled when we were first connected to have this conversation uh, to learn that this is one of your values. This is something that's really important to what you do with Envision Festival in Costa Rica and in your life generally, and that you yourself are guided by this idea that we can take festival culture out of the, out of the festival and into the world. Mm-hmm. I do. You know, it was funny for me with, I don't know, even that I'm a, a festival producer because I have to admit that I was never a big festival goer. Um, because a lot of it was just, you know, my own insecurities and feeling shy and whatever. And also where I grew up, you know, it was like what came around for festivals. It was, uh, the Northeast part of the U S so it was like fish culture, you know, it was in the nineties. And so, you know, festival music festival scenes were like fish shows, many day fish shows and, uh, mm, some like punk concerts and stuff like that. What was it? Warped tour that used to go around the nineties. Right. And so a lot of my introduction to festival culture didn't really come till later. Um, so I would go to concerts and things, but so I was in, in Philadelphia throughout my whole twenties and the festivals that came through the Philadelphia area were also very weird, you know, like Ozfest kind of things would have actually been to one. It was pretty fun and interesting, but um, you know, so I didn't have like a huge festival upbringing like some people do, you know, you meet some people who, you know, have been going to Oregon Country Fair since they were children, you know, and same thing with Burning Man now, you see like multi-generational, long, you know, long time burners and stuff that's been around for so long, but that wasn't a part of, you know, my identity. Um, And so, you know, it's interesting, like talking about identity and where we're going to go into the village witches and everything, but, you know, working with Envision and doing Burning Man for years before, but doing Envision has been such an interesting experience for me as an educator and as in some ways like newer to festival culture, but have always had my, I like to say like my freaky flag flying, (laughs) um, Mm. essentially and like coming out of the broom closet, which we'll also talk about later, just that concept of closets. Um, festivals open so many doors for people, you know, and allow us to check in in places that we don't get to in what we call like the default world, you know, or, just default regular society, you know? Um, so it's a big intro. (laughs) And so what was the first festival experience that you had that constituted the type of festival that you've been trying to create as a co-founder of Envision? What was the first experience you had Mm. that you would say is different than like the fish show or Ozfest, something where you Mm -hmm. felt you could really step out of, um, maybe not the broom closet necessarily at that point, but at least some kind of identity closet. Sure. So I like going to conferences <laughs> more so than like festivals. Like I would go to like concerts and conferences um, and festivals for me are kind of like a blend of the two, especially what I do because I love learning so much. And so I was going to um, herbalist conferences and I was in the natural food industry, organic food industry for a long time. And so those kinds of conferences and having 
the community there who are passionate about health and wellness and organic agriculture and organic food. And this is when I first learned about permaculture and I was getting into uh, different levels of ecology from like biological ecology to deep ecology. And there was that opening, you know, and then I went to Burning Man <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess my first Burning Man was in 2007, eight, 2008. And, um, that to me, I remember, you know, I went with my first husband and he asked me, he was like, so what do you think? <laughs> you know? And I was like, I'm hearing my dreams every night. Like, what do we mean? What I think like, this is not unusual for me. And so to see like my dreams kind of materialized was really amazing. Um, you know, and then living in Costa Rica and being off a grid and living in community and living close to the land and organizing workshops and people, you know, I'm a, I'm a projector in my human design. And so I'm very good at, you know, like guiding people and mentoring people into the places where they can ideally realize their highest selves and what they're really good at their skill sets, you know, which then led me back to Burning Man of like radical self-reliance is all about your skill set and your niche within community. And so, you know, for me with being a part of Envision, you know, like I entered Envision doing what I could do well or that what I had experience in, you know, like food and catering and hospitality because I had waitressed all throughout high school and college, you know? And so like being able to jump into that, like I knew what to do. Um, but I found such avenues for uh, creative self-expression and, and alternative education. And I always wanted, I was always a teacher and I wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't want to be in the public school system you know, and to work your way through the university system is just very tedious. And so, you know, I, I just, yeah, I kind of took, took it, you know, for what it was, it was a really amazing opportunity. Well, and, and now you're in a role of producing all of the educational content at Envision. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So my first years at Envision, I always booked some of the speakers, but you know, our educational content really started taking off when we um, added another stage in our sacred spaces, which I brought in 2015. So before we were just like two stages, you know, one of my first speakers was Carolyn Casey. I don't know if you know her from the Coyote News Network. Um, I actually don't know her. Um, can oh, you tell me so just fun. a little bit about her? Carolyn Casey is an, a political astrologer and she's like a keynote speaker at Bioneers forever. You got to check her out. She's based in cool. DC. She's really good. Yeah. So I remember like also tapping into these, like when I started booking talent, you know, from, that's what I do. Um, and, and curating the experience. It was also just so exciting for me to get to learn from the people I want to learn from, you know, and be able to reach out to teachers and just be like, let me honor you, please come, you know? And then of course, like just selfishly myself getting to learn from those people, you know? We, we have that in common because mm -hmm. I get the opportunity on this podcast um, to learn from people. And um, I'm so excited to talk about modern witchcraft with you today and mm -hmm. about herbalism as well. So I think we're going to spend a chunk of the conversation um, with you kind of catching me up to speed on some of the deep concepts uh, around, for example, herbalism. So you've been an herbalist for like 18 years, yeah? Mm -hmm. I started when I was 19. <laughs> Wow. So what exactly is an herbalist versus like, say, a botanist mm. or another kind of healer, perhaps? What is an herbalist? So that's such a good question. One of my favorite authors and uh, like published herbalists is um, uh, Matthew Hoffman. I'm sorry, David Hoffman. Matthew Hoffman, you might know. <laughs> also from the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. uh, David Hoffman, excuse me. Um, in medical herbalism, he taught one of his books. He talks about 
what is the herbalist and who are we really? And he actually helped me to re-self-identify myself as a therapeutic deep ecologist because he says an herbalist, like if this was, if you were, what is an herb? You know, like if you're a chef, what are your herbs? Your herbs are your aromatic spice cabinet. Those are the herbs. Sometimes your fresh herbs, you know, would be basils and parsley, you know, would be your fresh herbs. If you're in the old times, um, you would be more of like a botanist. You're someone who is working, you know, with with plants, like through early kind of um, scientific classification methods, you know, like in the 17, 1800s, those were, you know, what herbalists were, botanists, or they were called physics, you know, and the physics were the people who practiced medicine of some kind. Um, if you're a modern botanist, you, an herb then is a plant with a non-woody stem. But as an herbalist, someone like me who identifies as, as um, uh, a, pre- a therapeutic deep ecologist, which I love that so much, it's so beautiful. But we work with medicinal plants and mushrooms. And so we're looking to the plant and fungi kingdom to treat people from a holistic perspective is how I practice herbalism. And it is an art, it's a science, it's a craft and it's a practice. And I can get into that more later if you like, or now. And, um, and so as herbalists, you know, we, that, that's the overarching of where we are now with herbalism, you know? And I imagine that 18 years ago, we were in a much different landscape in terms of the, the mainstream medical acceptance of some of these medicinal properties of plants. For example, now, um, you know, I take lion's mane mushrooms every day. I Mm -hmm. just that, and that's something that is a common thing to do. But uh, 20 years ago, I don't think people were really doing that. Um, the landscape was probably a lot different when you started. Do you remember what it felt like to get into herbalism at that time in terms of the, in terms of mainstream, mainstream acceptance or, or where the field kind of sat at that time? I just got truth bumps. Yeah. I mean, it was very different. Herbalism has gone through a major history in this, uh, or herbalism, and we're going to overarch it, right? Like the practice of holistic medicine. So holistic medicine is also um, spiritual health, mental health, physical health, and bioregional health, right? And so the herbalist, um, how a lot of us practice now are through those many avenues. Some will focus on others more than, you know, one avenue more than another, like uh, plant spirit medicine, for example, is a very popular right now path, an important path of herbalism that a lot of people are practicing. You didn't hear about that like so much, you know, like in the, when I started, you know, it was, I graduated high school in 99 and I pretty much picked up my first herb book, like the next year, you know, like freshman year in college. Um, and my first herb book came to me through my mother. Uh, and she's been a gardener and I grew up in upstate New York and it's beautiful you know, Rochester, it's a city, whatever, has all those different social dynamics. But then, you know, 10 minutes out, you're in the boonies, which is like the suburbs where I grew up. And so we have a lot of green space, um, thankfully, but all sadly, it's also a lot of monocrops, you know, there's wheat growing up and corn, and now it's all corn and soy and sunflowers. Um, but we still have some woods and I played outside. I'm generation Y. I'd like to probably still say, <laughs> so are you probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, we're the same age, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. 81 metal rooster. Uh, 82, 82, uh-huh. so pretty close. You're, I think you're a, you're not a monkey. What are you? Uh, maybe a dog. dog. I think I'm a dog. I'd cool. like to be a dragon though. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> um so, 
you know, growing up, I had a closer, you know, like we still played outside a lot more than some of our most recent generations have. You know, we didn't have phones. Like I had a Nintendo when I was like in second grade, you know. So I've always had a closer relationship to nature and to plants. And my father's a hunter. And so I've always had a really distinct relationship between animals and animal consumption and the transference of vital force. And, and so, you know, well, herbalism came to me in this interesting way because I was also really sick as a kid. And this is what I talk about a lot too. When we talk about female reproductive health or just reproductive health in general, I study endocrinology because of, you know, the, the healer's path or the herbalist path, which you often find is the path of the wounded healer, you know, which is mm-hmm. Chiron, which is the centaur who was given medicine by, uh, or actually gave medicine to Asclepius, you know, the rod of Asclepius, who's the father of medicine. His daughters were Hygieia and Panacea, but it was from Chiron, the centaur, you know, who gave healing to humans. And he actually was a suicide. He was injured. And because he was like a, a god or a, a mystical creature, you know, he wasn't able to die, but he was suffering. So he took his own life and passed medicine on. And so you'll see a lot of people who walk the, the I call it the good medicine road is, you know, we're the ones we've suffered. And I think to really be an effective healer, you have to have a layer of suffering um, to really be able to, to treat people with deep empathy and compassion, you know? Um, so I just went on a Creek off of our river of conversation, but going back, um, that's what brought me to herbalism. Let me pause for one. <laughs> let me pause for one moment because I think that creek is extremely important. So I just mm-hmm. want to take a moment to honor that creek because I am certain that there are people who are listening to this who are at a completely different stage in their own wounded healer development than you are now. Mm-hmm. And one of the enormous values of getting to listen to someone who is as knowledgeable as yourself and who has worked through things is to be able to see that as a model to aspire to. So mm-hmm. I think that creek is enormously important for a listener who may be in a pretty deep wounded place at this mm-hmm. time. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's extremely hopeful, not only to hear that, say, it gets better or that healing is possible, but also that um, your wisdom, your treasure, what you end up giving to the world may be coming out of that wounding itself. Mm, absolutely. You know, I, I always say that the greatest disease of modern history, it's not diabetes, it's not cancer, it's not anything like that it's apathy mm. people don't care enough and when you when you're suffering and you feel alone and you don't feel like there's anyone there that cares about you or that really wants to help you then you know you start to get layers of trauma and cynicism and apathy and fear and hate and intolerance and, and all of that you know it's a rabbit hole and did so, that happen for you i mean i've gone i was a 90s kid <laughs> you know like I looked up to Marilyn Manson for a few years of my life. And so, yeah, (laughs) you know, he was like the first like witchy queer on the market. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) yes. Fuck you all. I didn't, I didn't think of him as a witchy queer. That's a wonderful frame for Marilyn Manson. Yeah. A witchy queer. Uh Interesting. You know, and I've been having, I've been doing some work lately and this is another fun Creek with Envision that we're really excited to launch, but about um, intersectionality between the village witches and LGBTQ or QT, you know, and the awakening nineties, which is really funny because for the back to the earth movement, it was the sixties, you know, seventies, like was whatever the eighties we, we started to shift and, and, you know, the trickle down economics, like all that hit us really hard. But in the nineties, 
is really when like queer culture and witchcraft became pop. And so it was an interesting, it's an interesting time to reflect upon on where we are now with it, you know, and how we're able to be more accepted, more free, even though we're still a minority and we're still face our own um, fear and hate and violence and oppression, you know, not as severely, well, which is less, I would say now, because we are very kind of subculture still, you know, even though it's becoming more pop with like Sephora having selling like the witch's starter kit. So, you know, well, all kinds of well, <laughs> well, I, I, and, and we're going to go deep into what it means to be a modern witch. Uh, mm-hmm. That'll end up being one of the big chunks of the conversation a little later. But I'd like to continue a little bit on the trajectory of your biography. So sure. you discovered Great. herbalism a little bit. You, you got that first book out of high school. Um, you were at the time living in New York. Is that the mm-hmm. case? I was in upstate New York for two first two years of college. And then I relocated to Philadelphia. So in those early years in upstate New York, um, I was getting really into edible flowers and taking, I was an art kid, you know, so it was like doing, it was community college. So I was doing all my liberal arts stuff, like getting it out of the way and just like touching in and all these different things. And I remember taking a nutrition class and getting my foundations in that and certain things where it makes sense, like links between dairy and allergies and just learning about food you know, like I needed the foundation about food because a lot of it went back to food for myself and where I was in my own health, you know, and food, primary metabolites, carbs, sugars, um, I'm sorry, proteins, fats, carbs, you know, that's the foundation, that's food, you know, and secondary metabolites are medicinal plants. And so also learning about secondary metabolites, just touching on it. And then I went to Costa Rica for the first time studying tropical ecology and that was essentially like the cracking open of my head <laughs> um, was that time. And what year was that? That was 2001, January 2001. I first came to Costa Rica. And so exploring the jungle and learning about, uh, you know, I grew up in monocrops, but also seeing the banana monocrops and experiencing tropical rainforest. There's nothing like touches your heart and soul, like seeing tropical rainforest it's so lush and diverse and it takes you from the anthropocentric mind directly into the ecosystem you know and it's it's amazing and so that was my cracking open and then I came home and I relocated at that same time to to Philadelphia um and you know I studied art history and art history actually because I was studying late antique, medieval art, Byzantine art through the Renaissance, um, that took me into witchcraft and actually finding goddess for the first time. And so, you know, getting into environmentalism and food and uh, my own health mixed with, you know, art history major at Temple in Philly, you know, like that wasn't even, that laid the foundation for my life, pretty much. Um, And and when did you first get involved with the producers of Envision? What was the trajectory between that first visit to Costa Rica and then you getting involved in co-producing a festival in that? Oh, years later, you know, um, well, my my first husband, Stephen Brooks, he's the founder of Punta Mona, also one of the co-founders of Envision. He's an ethnobotanist, amazing permaculturist. Um, His path has taken him down community development. He's developed... 
about five different communities in Costa Rica. He's a visionary. I don't know if you know him. You may. Oh, oh no, I do. I know him quite well, actually. He's a yeah. wonderful man. Yeah. 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 It's my husband. We were married for 10 years. Um, so I came back to Costa Rica. I was living at Punta Mona. You know, it was 2009. Our first envision was uh, 2011. And so I had been living off the grid at Punta Mona. I've been to Burning Man. Stephen, just some of his history, he was a deadhead. You know, he moved to Costa Rica after Jerry died because it was like he had an existential crisis about losing Jerry. And so... Um, I didn't know that, actually. Uh-huh. That makes sense, though. Totally. And so, you know, he he was a pioneer. He like finally spoke at Pioneers for the first time this year, too. And... Um, and a burner, you know, it took him into that. He's been off the grid a long time and he's a pioneer. And so, um, you know, Envision came through him. And then our friends, Brendan Jaffer and Sophia Tom. Sophia Tom is an amazing dancer. Brendan's her beautiful husband, also was in development for a while, long time burners. And then this, and our friend Josh Wendell, who um, was relocating to Costa Rica a little bit before I did, um, has a place in Dominical down by where Envision is and another beautiful place up at, uh, in Uvita called Selva Armonia, uh, retreat center, but he had been in Punta Mona and really inspired. And he has a foundation in Chinese medicine and loves fruit and plants and permaculture and all that too. So, you know, it was like that original crew along with, um, this group out of Boulder, which you may also know some of them, Justin brothers, um, mm -hmm, good friend. I love him so much. Matt Siegel, also a really good friend. And Jessica McStravick, dear sister. And so, like, we all came together in the first year. I didn't even really know what was going on, frankly. <laughs> I showed up and I was like, all right, cool. This is what we're doing. Um, and just, like, rallied and and showed up for the whole weekend. And I taught and did some plant walks and worked the box office and cooked food and worked the vendors. <laughs> I just did whatever. Um, and we had 700 or 800 people in the backyard of Brennan and Sophia's place. You know, and we pulled it off, and it was awesome. We're like, okay, this is really cool because, you know, we had this foundation in Burning Man. They had a foundation in an event production. And so it was like, let's do this in Costa Rica. Like, let's bring it home. Like, this is really awesome. You know, and Brendan had already been in Costa Rica. He came a little bit before Stephen. You know, like Stephen came, I think, in 97, and Brendan came in, like, 95. So, you know, that's just kind of how the seed went. And then, and then we kept moving forward. We've always moved forward. So tell me about when you introduced this idea of the village witches to Envision. Sure. So 2011, 12, 13, 13 kicked my ass. We had Alex and Allison Gray there that year painting. And we did this beautiful figure figure drawing workshop with Alex Gray. It was just fantastic. Oh, my God. So I'm there. I'm like drawing. I left the kitchen for like a moment because like I fed the festival for the first three years. And so like I leave the kitchen for a moment to go to this workshop and it poured, (laughs) Mm. poured. And like, you know, we have it set. And then when the time of year is, it's about the tides because we're a beach festival. So we follow the tides, you know, but it's also we're the first festival of the year. And so it's snowy, it's crappy. Like we want to get people out of winter, celebrate Costa Rica. It's also the dry season but we can't go by seasons, you know, like they have been pretty stable for a long time, but you know, with great change, um, comes a lot of, you know, uncertainty. And we've definitely planned for rain now, but that year we didn't. <laughs> and so it rained and I had my ass handed to me and I just, I had to back out 
and I backed out for 2014. Actually, that year, Brennan Sophia also backed out of the company. Um, and 2014, I backed out, and we moved locations to where we are now over at Rancho La Merced, which is right on the beach. It's developed so beautifully. We've put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees in the ground. Um, it's amazing. Anyways, we'll get to that later, I guess. But um, so I backed out for 2013 because I just, or for 2014, I was just over it for a little bit. I needed a break. Um, so I went actually and studied with one of my most favorite people in the whole world and worked with him. His name's Seven Song, and he is an old school, well-respected North American herbalist, um, from Ithaca. And he's from New York city, but he has the Northeast school of botanical medicine. He's one of the founders of the Ithaca free clinic. He's also old school rainbow calm clinic, which is the, uh, what is it? Center for all living something in medicine. I don't remember. I've never actually done rainbow, but he's old school rainbow and, um, just the most amazing herbalist. He also is a street medic. And so he's uh, politically active and he believes that herbalism is, is um, an activist's path. And so he shows up at like all Northeast New York city, DC, Boston rallies, you know, and is a street medic and treats people with herbs. And so I've always wanted to learn from him being at Punta Mona. We predominantly practice herbal first aid because we are off the grid. Um, we have machetes, we have bites, we have staph infections. We've, I've treated dengue, I've treated Zika, uh, chikungunya, not Zika. Um, you know, like all kinds of stuff <laughs> happens out in the, off the grid in the jungle. So going into first aid was very like natural for me and I'm not squeamish with blood and I really like doing first aid. I love doing wound care. I love that like critical on, uh, critical thinking, you know, formulations, it's a, not super holistic, actually, when we look at the difference between, you know, allopathic versus holistic medicine, like we're treating symptoms, but we just offer like relief to people so rapidly. It's, it's really beautiful. So I studied with Seven Song in Ometepe or in Nicaragua. We were around a few different projects and then up into Ometepe to do clinical at a free clinic in Los Angeles through um, Natural Doctors International. And as some people listening may or may not know, you know, like Nicaragua was, um, um, you know, in through wars in through the eighties and the early nineties. And actually right now they're in big political turmoil. Also, it's not being publicized because pineapple and tobacco comes out of Nicaragua and no one cares. But, um, so in Nicaragua, like when, what you see is people or countries, bioregions that have been devastated by war and can't rely on their government for anything are very in touch with their natural medicine. And they hold on to their traditional medicine because it's it's a survival uh, method, <laughs> you know. Um, and people just respond so well to it. And so I went to study with him for a few weeks and was so inspired. And I was like, Seven Song, you have to come to Costa Rica. You have to come to Costa Rica. I want to do a clinic. I really want to do this. We can bring it to Envision. And I planted the seed. He was like, talk to me in 2016. Let's book for them. I was like, okay. Because he books out like for years. He's a really amazing guy. And um so me and my friend Lala, uh, Laura Palmieri, she's a botanist and herbalist and permaculturist from Guatemala City who has been migrating between Punta Mona and Guatemala for some years working together. Um, her and I organized the clinic with Seven Song and, you know, we had a few of his students, like people he trusts trained, you know, to be our leads because our goal is, you know, we wanted to make it a student clinic and we wanted to bring people into a place where they could learn, you know, like practice, like herbalism is a practice. Like 
it's a craft, which is formulation, that's pharmacy, you know, and knowing the nuances of the human body and putting the energetics of the plants together. It's, you know, a science, obviously, in, in the biology of the plants, the phytochemistry of the plants, the bioregions where they come from, like fungal relationships, animal relationships, all that. That's a science, you know. Um, it's an art and that we're able to zoom out and see like big picture and really look at like relationships and families, plant families, you know, it's like the arts, like the broad sweeps, but you know, the practice, like a lot of people don't have opportunity to practice because back in 2000, you know, um, one, like when I started, we weren't trusted. And so like, it was really hard to get an herbal practice going. And it was like a really niche group of people. Now, it's like, if you're an herbalist, you can get a job, which is just amazing. You know, like you can create your own livelihood and be in practice, but to like really be in practice, you have to practice <laughs> and you have to, you have to start somewhere, you know? And so offering trainings like this, I felt like it's just so critical to the education of, of herbalists. And we're in our fourth year right now with it, with Envision. And I am so stoked. We have three veterans on our crew, a para- these are our students. These are people who are going to learn from me. Veterans, a paramedic, a midwife, and four nurses. And so these are people who have been through the conventional systems who have mad skills, you know, who are wanting to learn herbal medicine. And so this, you know, in these times of change, we have to be ready to take care of ourselves. And there's to practice, what are we going to wait for disasters to happen? And then we get there and we're like, uh, you know, like, what do I do? Um, you know, and so the festival environment, nature of it, you know, it's harsh. For some reason, we like to have festivals in hard places. Um, I just watched the fire documentary last night, by the way, on Netflix. Hilarious. I did too. I watched that two nights ago. So funny. <laughs> so we like to do things hard for some reason, those who know what we're doing and those who don't. <laughs> and, um, and it's just this amazing opportunity to learn, you know, and so it's just another whole thing with Envision is this like platform to learn and what we can do with festivals to learn, to train ourselves and like to get together and celebrate life, you know, with the party, it's a festival, you know, <laughs> and, and, and to get critical skills and not just make it like about hedonism, but like how can we really enrich ourselves to the max, like maximize this experience. So. So, so the, the village witches are integrated with, a traditional medic crew, as well as like psychedelic first aid, as well as security at the festival. Can you describe to me how that kind of works? Like how does, how are attendees triaged between these different groups? I know that um, herbalism can be acute care. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. when, why would someone go to say like the traditional medic versus herbalists? How does all that interplay together at the festival? Great question. So first, I'm going to do an educational piece about traditional versus you used what was what did you say herbal versus traditional medicine, and then psychedelic. Yeah, perhaps right? that's yeah, so, that might be the wrong framework. But okay. when I say yeah. traditional no, no, medical, no, I, what I mean is I know what according mean. to a festival structure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm and I know what you mean. And I'm going to just take a moment to lay some vocabulary for people listening. So when we say traditional medicine. Um, what we would refer to is medicines that are used by cultures. So like if you look at the the WHO, like the World Health Organization, like traditional medicine is about bioregional medicine focusing on natural remedies. Um, so when we are talking then about um, like medic, you know, we would call them conventional or allopathic medicine. So conventional treatment would be, you know, like our the the 
medical system that we have. Some people will say Eastern versus Western, which is also a misnomer. Granted, in Eastern <laughs> traditions, depending on what lines we're drawing, uh, they do have more integrated natural therapies. Like in China, I think 60% of their medicine, correct me, is um, natural. You know, like doctors know herbs. Um, whereas, you know, when we would say Western medicine, then we would be talking about like, you know, the U S medical system, um, which is chain or European medical systems, but medical, because they're also in the West, but European medical systems are also very integrated with homeopathy and nutraceuticals and herbs in the United States, you know, like we're focused, it's, it's a huge industry and more and more, like, as we see, I have like four nurses on my team want to know about herbs and natural remedies. So it's a smaller population, but growing. And so allopathic, what that means is treating a, a symptom or a disease with a pharmaceutical. And so <clears throat> natural medicine would be like maybe a nutraceutical, which would be like a uh, vitamin B, you know, B12 complex, like a nutraceutical or a, a phytopharmaceutical, which would be an extract of, of a plant, or it would be um, like an herbal herbal remedy or a mushroom remedy, um, homeopathy, you know, uh, aromatherapy that would all fall under like natural medicine, but it doesn't mean that we don't treat sometimes people allopathically with natural rem remedies. That's actually very common is like people will treat, um, you know, like a symptom or a disease the same way that they would treat it with a pharmaceutical, just replacing it for an herb. So that's not holistic medicine, right? And so as we're defining things for the, the medical integrated medical system that we're creating it in vision, you know, we have like conventional medic or medic, we just call it. We know that these people are trained in X, Y, and Z. We know their skill sets and they're working predominantly with um, pharmaceuticals, you know, whether it's a Benadryl or if it's a, just a saline IV drip, or if it's, you know, um, uh, an Advil or an anti, anti-diarrheal, you know, that's how they're treating, but they're also excellent at wound care setting of their diagnostic skill sets or, you know, I would say maybe not with the current crew I have coming in, but have historically been a little bit more superior to ours because you find a lot of herbalists don't do the medical training. It's like you kind of go the herbal path or you go like to be a nurse. You know, you see a lot of nurses starting to cross over. Um, and I think for, for herbalists, for anyone listening who really wants to be in practice this way, it's so important that you learn, you know, your basic sciences, uh, biological sciences. So it just helps you have a foundation for language and body systems understandings and, and to talk and communicate with other medical professionals, you know, on the same level. So, so there's that. And then, um, so we're, we're set up, we're, we're three autonomous units between us, the Zendo and medic um, securities down the way just a little bit. And you had a really good question about like triage. And so um, people have a choice. So when they walk up, there isn't one person being like, okay, you go here and you go here and you go here. People can walk up because we do believe in choice, you know, is that they, they could, if they have a mild diarrhea, we could treat them or medic can treat them, either one. So it comes down first to personal prerogative and where you want to go. And then we have dialogue in between medic and us of like what, because we are also a student clinic. We need to set our limitations and our boundaries within a very ethical way. And so we say in agreement with the medic, if we, if we see a fever of 103, automatically to you. If we see a fever of, although we could get 103 fever down with herbs just fine, but 
we wanted just in case. And so go over there and, and just get checked on by medic first. That was a boundary that they requested, which we thought was quite reasonable, you know? Um, whereas like, if we didn't have that, like I'd probably keep someone with 103 fever for a while and treat them with herbs because it, it is very effective, you know? And then it's also happened where medic, you know, has sent people over to us. And the beautiful thing that's been happening, the first year was bumpy. Um, it was our friend Wolverine who, you know, is this like old school, cool paramedic dude, like also burner. Um, and him and seven song had a funny thing and they definitely worked it out. Cause seven song, you'd think he's a hippie, but he's not, he says he's emo come lately. He dresses in black and he's like a snarky New York Jew. And so like they had this very funny thing and the first road was bumpy, but we showed that like, we understand our limitations and we respect your boundaries and we have our own boundaries and let's do this together because we're here to help people. Security like right away was like, yes, this is awesome because we treat, a thousand people. And so we take such a load off of like medic that they can handle some of the date, like someone falls, you know, and gets a concussion. They can focus on that and not focus on someone with diarrhea or menstrual cramps or a head cold, or is also freaking out because they can't, you know, anxiety. Triage is really interesting, you know, because it's about delegating who goes first, right? Like which case uh, needs to be seen, which one's the, the most important or the most dangerous, severe. Um, and in vision, we don't have like a, a person standing out there triaging one to medic, one to Zendo, one to clinic, herbal clinic. Um, people have the opportunity to exercise free will and choice. Um, and they're going to go to where they feel most called. Um, Zendo is present right on the street. And so they feel a lot of people right away. Um, they're able to sense and, you know, tell by certain signs, um, you know, who needs to be seen, who comes to us. Um, so they're out there giving information. We definitely will take some opportunities to stand on the street and talk to people as well. It's on, you know, one of our service roads as they were security and, and, uh, medical is. And so, you know, people can exercise their own choice and then we triage them as they come into our individual spaces. And so then it's handled autonomously, the triage, although we do integrate quite often and we'll walk people to medic or to Zendo if, if that, if we feel by doing their intake, if that's the best treatment for them and same thing, you know, they'll field people out to us, especially with Zendo can, people can transition out to us really nice to come and get nervines and things to sleep and take an edge off, you know, which medic can't really provide that kind of stuff. Um, or medic, you know, will walk someone over to, to us and, and we'll bring people over to them. So, you know, there, there's a lot of communication happening during the event, not just within our autonomous units. You know, um, I don't think you know this, but I actually, um, I volunteered with the Zendo, not only volunteered, I was actually completely embedded with the Zendo in 2015 at Envision. Oh. Yeah, that was my first introduction to psychedelic first aid. And I camped with them. I was, I did the entire festival with them and, uh, the triaging you're describing and the community experience of care where are the there are different access points and there's a collaborative response. To me, that was something that was 
not only did I feel that we were able to offer great medical care and great emotional support to attendees, it also had the feeling of a community. It had the Mm -hmm. feeling of a village. And I remember being struck by that myself at the time while volunteering. So I really appreciate the way that that was formatted because I think it not only does it provide really high quality care to the guests of the festival themselves, but in terms of a festival as a teaching school, a festival as a community, I think this was a wonderful expression of that. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's it's so beautiful. You know, and it's developed through the years. We definitely had our bumps, you know, at one point. Um, but it's we look forward to it every year and we communicate with each other, you know. And I, I work with the Zendo actually opens the educational component of uh Envision because they do the harm reduction training. It's a two and a half hour training that, you know, with in the clinic, all the clinic students go to it. Uh so we as a facilitators, we stay behind and person the clinic um and then they all get that training as well because there's you know zendo doesn't participate in any internal medicine at all um so we wouldn't come in to support them during you know their their sits with people um but when people come out you know they can transition to us really nice we we talk to them a lot and you know some people are really interested in integrating herbs into you know harm reduction and uh talking people through experiences and in the addition to the medical support of the village, village witches, there are also there are also other um, community offerings that you've worked on within that framework. Um, and I'm not sure when each of these were kind of rolled out, but there's, for example, the Red Tent Movement, mm-hmm. um, the, the Sacred Fire. Uh, uh, the Earth Temple. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the other offerings beyond the sort of herbal care within the medical framework um, and how they relate to this concept of village witches. For sure. Um, so, you know, I opted out for 2014. I told that story. Um, when I got back, pretty much for the next production, beginning of the next production cycle, you know, which is like June, <laughs> May, um, even, I went to my partners um, and presented the idea. I was like, I have this idea. I want to call it the village witches. You know, it's going to be an elixir bar. It's going to be, I want to take over the healing sanctuary. We're going to put the sacred fire, um, the red tent. We're going to do an educational platform based on herbs. And and like I said, I got a lot of support right away because two of our other team members, besides Stephen and Brendan, who are both ethnobotanists, and Stephen's a fruit guy. He's also my husband, so of course he was an advocate. Um, but Matt Siegel and, and Josh Wendell are both herbalists, um, in their own right. And so they were very, yeah, Matt's doing a, Matt's doing a mushroom farm mm-hmm. project now. Yeah. Right. Yep, yep. Um, and so, you know, right away it was like, yeah, cool, let's do this. Um, again, like I don't come from like the festival background. I was going to herb gatherings and concerts, you know, and so, and conferences and that's what I really like doing. So, and my friend Annie Coleman was still curating the village stage. I think that's 2015. That's when you spoke, correct? Yeah. Yeah. She would, uh, she helped yeah. me in that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, um, but I did bring like the village witches stage right away to it. So, you know, in 2015, our first year we did the elixir bar. I took over the healing sanctuary. We had always had one, but I just started overseeing it and, and brought a few different things to that. And then, um, the sacred fire and the red tent went up right away as well. Uh, the red tent temple movement for me is just so imperative to, um, female solidarity and safety and security and, and reclaiming of what we call the feminine mysteries, um, you know, in the craft and the temple movement, we, we say that the red temple, ten, red tent temple movement, you know, goes back to the cult of Inanna and, um, 
not even the cult, the religion of, of Inanna in ancient Sumer. So, you know, it's, it's a, a piece of um, history that I, I feel really, really close to. And then um, I really love having the red tent there, you know, and then I did the red tent my first time, you know, and it's not original, like it's, these are all over, it's, it's a movement. And so the first red tent that we had at Envision, it was so beautiful to see the guys hovering around this tent. One, it's filled with beautiful women, you know, but two, it's also like they, they really need that and in the craft in, in witchcraft, you know, it's often referred to as the craft, uh, which has many different paths, but within the craft there, there are female, um, power man hating witches. <laughs> um, but they're a minority. I feel now, uh, they were stronger back in like the seventies and the eighties, you know, with the, with the resurgence. And that came out of just a lot of, uh, response with, you know, hate, hate to hate, you know, it's like, we, we've been oppressed and now we're going to oppress. Um, the craft has evolved much beyond that back into the, the deeper wisdom of, you know, the, the sacred marriage between the masculine and the female pro- energies, you know? And so for me, men have been so damaged for so long and, you know, we, we can't, goddess can't awaken without her consort. And so, um, you know, I, I started bringing a lot of, uh, male masculine men focused, um, experiences to our sacred spaces. Uh, we had this, the, the fire, um, that started in 2015. So that's keeping the hearth, you know, the hearth and the heart of, of the festival and a safe space for people to go. And, you know, there's like Chanupa ceremonies and some people are doing rapé and, you know, grounding out, but it's, it's, it's pretty much like a substance free safe space, at least alcohol free safe space for people to be. And then within, I did have a temple to the sun one year, but because of budget cuts, we don't have it anymore. So all the masculine um, supportive workshops and ceremonies are in our temple. You know, so we have some really amazing male leaders from Costa Rica and teaching and, and have doing offerings this year and really talking a lot too about because of all the sexual misconduct um, <clears throat> and, you know, the, the media that it got, especially with Me Too and all, and all that. So talking a lot about the transparent sexual consu- uh, pursuit and consent culture and um, another friend of mine, his goes by conscious cock. He talks a lot about just, you know, what is like masculine responsibility and our role with, with women and everything. So it's been a really beautiful, you know, just support, I think for, for everyone. And that's also the village witches, you know, it's, and then there's the elixir bar, which is, do you know Jill Trashley? from the gnome i don't oh no oh i do i do i do we mm-hmm. met at envision as well we met on the mm-hmm. way to envision cool um, yeah. we shared a ride yeah so she's my collaborative partner and dear sister um in the village witches and she brings her elixir bar the, the gnome and this amazing crew of witches gnomies and um you know we do this great installation of just another safe space it's all about mindful consumption because like i said witchcraft is not just a spiritual path it's about the ecology of place you know and like what is our relationship to a space and with the natural world with the flora the fungi and the fauna you know all around us and village witches is a copy lefted thing it's not owned by me you know it's like anywhere there's there's village witches and so you know going back like what it, what is witch is you know we're we're people who speak for the land and um and we're we're 
some of us are channels, like there's various kinds of witches, you know, and so also what I bring to envision, there's like the sacred path of it, you know, and the channeling of the divine, whatever medium it is for you. And then there's also the healing path, which comes in many different forms. And so there's the clinic and then the healing path and the community aspect of the bar, you know, it's like people love bars, it's where we congregate. And so it's like taking these congregational experiences that aren't healthy in the default world, like we're consuming al- monocropped alcohol, that's like marketed to us super hard. Um, and shifting that into taking in traditionally inspired beverages, you know, like we make a Coca-Cola and we do like root beers and ginger beers and fun, like different kinds of martinis. And we're working with, you know, medicinal plants as, as the foundation to like, how can we really enrich the party festival experience without, you know, wasting ourselves. So there's many different pieces. And then there's the education part and the healing sanctuary. We can get body work and energy work and sound healing and all that. That's the village witches. Wow, there's there's so much there that I want to talk about. Um, one thing I just wanted to to bring up is um, I'm curious how the red tent movement dovetails with other offerings at festivals that go under the name of like a woman's safe space. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in uh, Shambhala in Canada, um, they have a woman's safe space, and it's part of their harm reduction offerings. It's just mm. a place where if women are uncomfortable, they can go to receive support. Um, there's a there's a woman doctor that's always present there. There are there are, you know people to support women who need that kind of a safe space. It does the does the red tent at um, Envision function in that way? I think that you said there's also workshops that are held there as well. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Well, it's definitely a safe space. You know, I would say the temple, the sacred fire, and the red tent are all safe spaces. You know, especially at the sacred fire, the sacred fire and the red tent are held like all weekend long. The earth temple is a little bit more free flowing, open. There's scheduled programming, but there's also spots where people just come in and get a sound bath. They can leave um, some workshops, but at the red tent and and at the fire, there there's people there who, you know, they they hold the spaces sacred, and so ideally, automatically, sacred space is safe, right? And, and so people can go in there to like lay down, they can rest, they can, you know, with the red tent in particular, there is like a little pod off of it. You can offer, you know, womb blood to the earth. You can, you're in there with women who are tending the hearth, you know, um, I wouldn't say it's set up like a harm reduction space or like a a space where people have had deep traumas. Like, you know, they're the people who are holding those spaces might not be, um, you know, trained or within their 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 sphere of of scope of practice you know to to handle someone well and so i definitely talk to all my people all the time like about like if there's if you can't handle something like call you know and we'll bring someone in who can handle i always it's it's very firm in i would say in my herbal teachings is you know there's no faking it till you make it that's how you hurt people that works in like that works in marketing and like with influencers and stuff but not in not in medicine. (laughs) And so, um, you know, ethics is like my core is like our, our boundaries, our limitations and and ethics of making sure that people are cared for and not being hurt because of our ego thinking that we can treat somebody, you know? Wow. Um, it's, it's what I love so much about what you're doing at Envision and also what you're doing with me here in this podcast is you're taking concepts that for a listener who's completely uninitiated and even for someone like myself might on the face of them 
have kind of a bit of a woo-woo vibe. Like, it's just like, okay, that's not real science. That's not real. And you're distilling these concepts and, and, and delivering them in such a way that it feels precise. It feels certainly ethical and um, scientifically underpinned and, um, and then delivered in a clear way without the sort of signpost esoteric language that can be difficult to approach for someone who has not yet explored these concepts. And so I really appreciate the way that you're sharing with the audience today and what I can imagine is showing up in the educational content at Envision that, that you're making these concepts accessible mm, um, and that there's, that there's rigor behind um, the, the, above all the safety, but also kind of the science that's part of the, these, these ideas. Absolutely. And thank you. Um, <laughs> one of the best comments I ever got once from a student was your teachings like a tree. It's expansive and far reaching. I was like, yes. Um, you know, I'm foundationed in permaculture as well. Um, permaculture is started as a science, um, predominantly about uh, the development of human settlement in relationship to the natural world. Um, you know, so for me, it's really important that everything's accessible and and shown that it's there's many like foundations are diverse, <laughs> just like the ecosystem. You know, like you look at the soil and like what is the foundation under my house? It's not just one slab of concrete. It's rock. It's soil. It's concrete. It's roots. It's stones. You know, and these all make up our our ecology. And ecology is just you know it's home. Eco's home. And so for me, I am rooted in the natural sciences and I believe deeply in them, but I'm also, I'm super woo woo and super new age <laughs> to myself <laughs> and to some of my other friends who are like super new agey. Like I geek out on archetypal psychology, which is astrology, <laughs> like so much. I love it. Um, and, you know, when we talk about witch, like there is an esoteric occultish part to it for sure, because we're tapped in, we're channels through nature and witches all believe that nature is divine and we can look at it from different perspectives, you know, whether it was like the Greek focus on medicine of the humors and the vital force, or if you go into the Ayurvedic perspective, which talks about prana, you know, um, Shiva Shakti, or you go into TCM, which talks about chi, the life force, you know, it's like, these things are universal. This is universal language. And so for me with accessibility as a teacher, like I need to be able to talk to anybody at any time. I don't want people to feel separated from what I'm talking about or like they can't uh, identify or empathize or get what I'm talking about. You know, it's like if I'm talking above someone's head, I'm not at their level for like where they are in their learning process and I'm not an effective teacher. And then I'm just trying to be dogmatic guru or something i don't know for a teacher but one of my favorite quotes um, and i'm going to paraphrase it but it's from the witch of portobello by pa uh, paulo coelho and he says the role of the teacher is to unlock within the student that which they already know and mm. which and i actually don't even always call myself i'd say i'm a teacher because it's what people get but i'm really a facilitator and a guide <laughs> you know and i'm just sharing what i've learned and what's i'm i'm passionate about i mean you can tell like i'm not just sitting here like Wah, wah. <laughs> you know it's i love this I, I know I know you do. I can I can feel it, and I can feel you in this role of a teacher, and I can feel you, you know, teaching in this moment. And <laughs> for me, as a student, I was a student of history in college, mm -hmm. and I love I love understanding how aspects of the world have emerged into what they are today, and where 
different things come from and ideas. And when I was thinking about our conversation today, one of the things I was so excited to talk about was this idea of witchcraft. Um, and witchcraft over the years then emerging into this sort of modern movement of community and herbalism and um, ecological responsibility. And I was wondering if you could kind of locate us on a trajectory of what it of what being a witch is, where these these ideas first came from, and how witchcraft relates to your personal ancestry and your personal relationship to being a witch. Um, it would be really cool just to kind of hear the history and hear what it means to be a witch today. Mm, that is so huge. <laughs> I know. Right? I'm just going to give you a softball here. It's okay. Just, you know. So, witchcraft. <laughs> Witches. Uh, are you ever a fan of Angelica Houston? Roald Dahl and the Witches? Yeah, 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 Remember yeah. that movie? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in a long, long time, but I do remember, yeah. So that was a part of my, like, um, subconscious development into a witch through media as a child. <laughs> it was like, okay, so let's just go back. So I'm also a student of history. Um, you know, I told you I did my – I only have an undergraduate in um, – art history. And I studied late antique, which was pretty much like Marcus Aurelius up through the fall of the Roman empire into, uh, which then became like, it was European medieval history pretty much, but I was also studying like the Khmer dynasty and, um, uh, some Hindu art around the same period and a little bit into, uh, pre-Columbian art of, of the same time frame. So this is everything like, you know, 300 with the transfer of the Roman empire into Christianity, into the Renaissance, you know? And so this was such an interesting period in human history, a really um, superstitious time in human history. It was this time of severe power over systems uh, with this concept of the God King and the concept of the God King is not new, you know? Um, But it's manifested itself in various ways, you know, from like Gilgamesh, in Mesopotamian his, uh, mythology up through, you know, Caesar. And we look at like, you know, Charlemagne and all these men throughout history who, you know, ruled under the concept that they were godly, you know? Um, and with that came an, an oppression of people, you know, people who didn't fit into what, was the status quo of whatever time it was. And so there's always been a history of oppression and a history of violence and fear. And what I've been reading now, which I really love is a lot of, uh, Rianne Eisler's work. Um, one of her most famous books is the chalice and the blade and going back to Neolithic history and when, and Paleolithic and when we were possibly a goddess loving, peaceful, uh, agrarian peoples and that we did exist, you know, and that like power over structures came from environmental collapse. And when we would look to leaders to help us survive and being human beings, we kind of like that. And I think we, you know, uh, who doesn't like to be in power a little bit? I love being on the top. Like I'm, I'm totally, you know, a fair share per me, but yeah, it feels great to be the boss. Um, I think it's a part of human nature, you know, is to kind of get off on that power trip. Um, and some people take it to like such extremes, you know, that the power over systems have become the dominant 
dominant way. Uh, and so like when we think about like witches, this is so deep because <clears throat> we, however these people were, because it's like an herbalist, there's many different things. Like a witch was uh, a midwife. She was an intercessor. Maybe she, you know, was an oracle. Maybe she was a shaman or someone who worked with animals or someone who was a psychic medium, you know, who talked to ghosts, or maybe she was uh, a doctor, you know, like she worked with herbs and like treated people like clinical, you know, those that that's been around for forever. We call it the phys- physic, right? Like from our, our Greek um, medical traditions, which predominates Western society. It's like the witch was so many different things. Sometimes the witch was a part of a cult, you know, and cult, we call it now, but they were, they were religions where they worshiped a, a God because witchcraft is monotheistic and polytheistic at the same time, which is really interesting. But because the monotheistic is, is one love, it's spirit, it's whatever the creative force is, is in the universe that creates the universe and then split into the masculine, the different energies, right? We work a lot with um, <clears throat> the, the directions and the elements are very, very much, you know, a thread that links witchcraft together. And, you know, whether we're talking about the energetic principles of earth, air, fire, water, and, and spirit, um, through whichever paradigm, it could be TCM, where instead of, you know, air, it's metal, um, and TCM is traditional Chinese, Chinese medicine. medicine. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, it's like these were all 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 witches. And like in Hebrew, for example, I learned this recently is like the word for witch. There isn't just one because there was like the 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 person who talks to animals. There's a person that talks to the dead. The person that works with medicines. The person who catches babies. And those were all witch. And so it's it's a very broad term. Um, which specifically like oppression and it can, it has positive and negative, mostly negative connotation through our current history, modern history, you know, and what's being, what's happening right now is what's called a reclaiming. And so like a big part for me was actually when I picked up the spiral dance by Starhawk in like 2000, 2001, again, that was the time my head cracked open. <laughs> and so I found Starhawk, of course, at that same time. I don't know if you're yeah, familiar Star- with Starhawk is, is speaking at the festival this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't even know what an accomplishment it is for me to have like my name on the building with Starhawk. I'm just like, yeah, I feel very proud of that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, she's San Francisco based. She's in the reclaiming tradition. She wrote the spiral dance in 1973, which was a neo-pagan manifesto to the goddess. And, um, and then she got into earth activism deeply. She found permaculture in the eighties and she took permaculture as a science um, and brought it into the, the spiritual and the social realm. And so now we have permaculture and restorative justice. We have permaculture and activism. You know, we have um, social permaculture, which is a lot of what I teach right now, which is about group process and power over structures and patterns and human dynamics. And so, you know, Starhawk opened, paved the way for the evolution of permaculture um, through the, also, you know, her spirituality is based in, in the craft and based in witchcraft. So it's this huge thing, um, which is really, which is just bringing people back, I, I believe, into their, their indigenous selves, into their, their, their space within this, this world, this natural world. It brings human beings back into the web of life. It is really what I believe witchcraft does. Is a witch always a woman? 
yeah, what what is the nature of gender here? So yeah, the nature of gender is super interesting. So witch, like when we go to the witch craze, which was between the 1500s and the 1700s, which was like the uh, which was also when the Inquisition happened, when you know the Holocaust of the Americas happened. It's you know it, it all happened around the same time. Interesting enough, it was also the Renaissance, which was the rise of humanism and these great thinkers and these amazing artists like Da Vinci. Da Vinci is like my hero of the Renaissance. He was such an amazing man. Like he was around the same time that we were persecuting witches. Um, and so it was, he was queer. He was queer. I know. I know. And a genius, one of the most genius people have ever lived on this planet. I love studying Da Vinci. And, um, and so, you know, what it was though, is that at that same time in the 1500s, there was a population boom. And what happens with population boom, inflation and scarcity, um, mm. power over systems coming into bigger play, you know, uh, overcrowding people in the cities, agrarian people like, you know, um, and this migration of people was happening. And so with that, um, it was really easy to target people and to find scapegoats. And, you know, we didn't have microscopes that showed us for the first time bacteria, which help us to understand that that's what causes diseases. We didn't even get viruses yet, right? And so disease was based on belief of disease. A lot of it was like, um, you know, devil worship, or you did something wrong, and God is punishing you. And, you know, it's a very coercive, punitive justice system that we still have, you know, but it was super severe. I mean, like, if you stole, you would have your hand cut off, people would have their ears nailed to to posts, you know, you need to rip yourself off. Like the, it was an extremely violent uh, time in history. And that violence because of Catholic church and sexual suppression and all of that, you know, and then scapegoating picked on women. And so, you know, misogyny has been around for a long time, but it was to this extreme for, you know, a period of around 200 years that was so violent against women in, um, you know, in Western Europe and, and in parts of Eastern Europe as well. And that's the route to a lot of, I mean, who, who are we? You know, it's like, I look around indigenous, we look at the U.S., we look at our festival culture and we're all like around the world. We're rooted in European colonialism and, and oppression, you know, like I'm a mixed, mixed heritage person. I'm a quarter Chinese, but you know, my Irish, German, French background, we were witches that were tried. And I'm actually from a place on the French German border, like my blood history uh, called Alsace, um, Alsace Lorraine. And that was where, you know, I'm one of my books that I've studied um, witch craze, a a new history of the European witch hunts, our legacy of violence against women, like actually puts into perspective and location wise of like the accounts, like what is in our records. And it was a, a place in Europe that was, you know, some, the most witches died there. And you go there now and it's like, you see like witch stuff that you can buy in tourist shops. It's the same thing in Scotland. I was, um, I did a a tour of Scotland over the summertime. I went to sacred sites and prayed at standing stones and did the spiral dance. And it was beautiful, but like at Edinburgh Castle, like in Edinburgh, which is, you know, it's been completely uh, ethnically cleansed and just, you know, monocropped with sheep to make Scottish plaid that people were killed if they wore it in the 1700s, same time, you know, there's like a, they would try women and men, but predominantly women like in, 
in the the center, you know, like right before the castle and torture people and condemn them and hang them. And, you know, now there's a plaque like dedicated to the witches who died in front of Edinburgh Castle attached to a Harry Potter store. And so it's this really funny irony of like, okay, we're bringing the witches back. You know, like I call people in the default world muggles. It's one of my favorite ways to like put them down, non-magical people, you know? <laughs> and and yeah, Harry Potter culture brought like magic and these mystical creatures into, you know, our, our consciousness um, in modern times. But like, you know, it, it's that irony of like, oh my God, these, these are my people and, and they suffered here. And now we're selling Hogwarts scarves, you know? And so there's, there's a lot of layers of things going on of our history with it and who we are like following our, our blood heritage, but also like, um, which is believed deeply in karma. Um, hasn't always been used that word, of course, that comes from Sanskrit, you know, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, whatever. Um, but like that law, you know, of, and that rebirth and that reincarnation and the ability to transcend, that's also a universal belief system throughout in, you know, witchcraft as well. It's, so, you know, it's, it's, it's heavy and it's a lot and it's also really beautiful and it's really empowering because we're in a time in life where, where we can speak is freely, freer than we ever have. You know, like if this was a hundred years ago and I was sitting here talking about this stuff, I would totally be condemned as a witch, shunned, like I might not have been killed, but I, I could be not accepted by my family. You know, if you have Catholic upbringing or any upbringing that you know, to call yourself a witch, it's like, whoa, what are you, weird? Like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Kind of thing. Um, and there's various kinds of persecution, it might not be violent, although there is violent persecution still in some places. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a very, it, we're in times of change, and it's empowering, but also kind of scary. And it's also a place of solidarity. And it's this amazing thing that's going on right now. You mentioned Catholicism. Mm -hmm. uh, Costa Rica is a Catholic country, and the village witches are a fairly predominant aspect of Envision Festival and growing. How has the local um, Catholic church and, um, and in general, how has the, the witchcraft element of Envision uh, interplayed with the local Catholic Costa Ricans? Uh-huh. Great question. So actually, the Catholics aren't as bad. <laughs> as evangelicals. So Catholicism is actually closest to witchcraft of all the uh, Christian denominations um, because of Santeria, because of the worshiping of the Virgin Mary, because of their acceptance of the Eucharist, which is the, you know, tra uh, transforming bread into the body and the water into uh, wine into blood. Um, this is all, this all comes from Catholic appropriation of indigenous traditions around Europe and in various cultures, right? Um, gods and goddesses replacing saints, like in the Yoruban traditions, like in the, or, um, excuse me, in the Centuria traditions of like Cuba and Brazil and into Costa Rica, you see a lot in Mexico, like Oaxaca, you know, very into Centuria. And so the Catholics are much more in modern times accepting. And it's also almost like a joke. Like when you say my wife's a witch and you're like, Hey, hey they'd be like, what? <laughs> and you're like, no, haha. -ha. Like brujeria, she's a white witch, you know? And so sometimes because in the Latin traditions here too, curandismo, which is like, like to be a curandera is to be an herbalist in the form of like, 
uh, we work with herbs, but we also work with the spirit side. You know, like uh, the term sh- like shaman, like shaman, 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 <laughs> like all different ways that people say it to sound cool is like not from our tradition. You know, so you're like a taita or, or that would be like a specific from Colombia healer that works with ayahuasca, you know, but a curandero is someone who works with plants, with animals, with spirits um, in various traditions. They're the ones who are sitting in the health food store selling herbs a lot of times, you know. And so like right now, at least in Costa Rica, like when you use the word word bruja, which is like a female witch or a brujo, which is a, a male witch, like you kind of have to explain a little bit, but they get it, you know, they get what's going on. They're like, oh no, we work with natural medicine. We're like feminists, you know? And they're like, ah, okay. So you speak to them on their level. Um, but to say like a brujeria or like this person's practicing black magic, like, you know, you don't use the word brujeria. And so like, it's a translation thing. And so like, I wouldn't, in English, I would say witchcraft, but in Spanish, I would say curandismo. And so that's a really severe difference in translations, you know? Um, but that's just also understanding cultural context with language. So in Costa Rica, the, and, and because herbalism, because we're so rooted in herbalism too, with how we're presenting the village witches at Envision, um, it's really well received. The evangelical church, though, thinks we're evil. But then again, it's not just the village witches they think are evil. They would look at our stages and be like, demons, you know? <laughs> so it depends on the de- denomination. But I would actually say Catholicism is one of the more accepting in modern times. Interesting. Irony. I know, it's total irony. But, you know, pagans for the Pope. Like, I was all about, what's his name? Francis, the Argentinian Pope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, he's cool. <laughs> all the Catholic po- political stuff and nasties with molestation aside, like, as a person, he's a very accepting person. So the 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 local Catholic Church is more accepting. You said the evangelicals are not so much. Um, there was... Weren't there, there were protests, um, of Envision mm-hmm. in 2016. Yeah. From, was that from the evangelical church? Yes. Not the Catholic church. And, and was that, you said that that was in relation to this, f- this fear of demons or this yeah, idea it a, that it was a few things. So, um, I mean, where Envision, so looking at cultural context, where Envision is hosted, it is a small Costa Rican community. Costa Ricans are cowboys, like really. Like around the city, it's cool. There's all different kinds of people. The beach towns, it's a different vibe. But if you go inland, 200 meters, <laughs> pretty much in every Costa Rican town, maybe except the Caribbean because it's a, a different vibe on the Caribbean. But it's this cowboy culture, um, cowboy culture in Nicaragua, cowboy po- culture in El Salvador, like it's, it's what it is. And so it's these traditional cultures that are very, you know, um, male in the household, few kids, maybe having kids a little early, getting married early. These, what we would say, like those nuclear traditional families, you know, and you know, they're religious and, um, maybe not a lot have gone to college. So Costa Rica has a huge middle class saying like college educated community like into the countryside it's high school and people are farming still and they're running hardware stores and they're having cattle and maybe they're farming teak or they're farming coffee um you know and so for them to even see all of us freaks show up they're kind of like whoa (laughs) what's going on you know and again 200 meters 
onto the beach, the beach towns where it's like, like Costa Ricans who would be like, who we would say are cool. You know, they're surfers they're into organic food. They go to the farmer's market. They practice yoga. They're, you know, they're more integrated into um, like a more global globalized community because of also tourism in Costa Rica. And, um, and so, you know, the edge between that <laughs> is kind of small. And so, yeah, like, you know, if anything shows up in your community that you're unfamiliar with, you're gonna be like, whoa, what is this? And we come in pretty severely, you know, it's, and we are accepted by the community as well. Um, you know, we bring a lot of local business, all the hotels are booked, like we have, we do give backs, we're planting, we work with a ton of Costa Rican organizations. Like I've been here for 10 years. I'm a Costa Rican resident. I'm a proud expat of the US. I love Costa Rica. This is my country. Um, and I, I get it why why certain people wouldn't be be into us, you know? And for the evangelical church in particular with that protest, um, you know, we did a give back with one of the schools and I don't remember if it was Chris Dyer or if it was, I think it might've been him and like another Costa Rican artist, like did the murals. And if you're evangelical and you believe in Satan and demons, then, you know, like what this looks like, what we might see is a God face or a mask, a ceremonial mask, or like an anthropomorphic, like animal, you know, they would see as a demon. And so it's also about the cultural context and maybe we should have been more sensitive and we should have painted a butterfly and something jungle related, you know, and that's a, that's been a learning curve, um, working in, in Costa Rica. And, and for me, you know, being, being a transplant and, and coming here to establish myself and, and have my life, um, we have to be very mindful of, of cultural context, but we're also within the cultural context that Costa Rica is super progressive country, um, very environmental country, and that the people here are really amazing, you know, all kinds of walks of life and people that are into health and people that are into, um, you know, freedom. It's the Pura Vida, actually. It's like the definition of Pura Vida is like so many things. But I read a beautiful article where this one Costa Rican guy, he was talking about like what Pura Vida means. And it's like, you are allowed to be you. Like you are you're you and who am I to tell you what to do as long as you don't hurt anybody else and that you're just in your own prerogative. So it goes back to almost like radical self-reliance and it's, it's beautiful, you know? Um, and so the protests for me, you know, it only happened once we have community meetings and we do a lot of good work and people know it, you know, and some of the things they criticize like drugs and kids and nudity, it's, we do need to be mindful of, of that. And I'm not saying that I'm a sober person, but I believe in, you know, people having their own prerogative and being able to do what they want to do, but also within cultural sensitivity and, and being mindful that like, yeah, you're here in another country. And when you go into the grocery store, if you have your top off, you're being rude. And, you know, it's like, I don't go into other people's countries and do things that are dickish. You know, mm-hmm. um, So it's, there's layers to that too, you know? You mentioned the beautiful Costa Rican slogan of Pura Vida, mm-hmm. um, which is similar to life is a festival. Yay. You know, how do we <laughs> how do we create a life that is the good life? How do we create a life that is, hey, be who you are and that's cool as long as you're not hurting anyone? Mm-hmm. And um I'd like to kind of bring our conversation towards its close by talking about this idea of what is the purpose of a festival of a congregation once that 
gathering is over. And um, Envision is clearly a value-driven model. There's so much teaching that's going on there. There's so much that you've personally done with the festival to explore these different models of congregation and of education. And so what I'd like to close with today is some of your some of what you've learned about how to make life a festival from your own experience in festivals and also some of how you feel some of the things that you feel envision is teaching its attendees in terms of being able to make their own lives into the open-hearted experimental loving space that is what we find when we attend a festival mm. so what my sister always says to me is that perception is reality, right? Like I'm complaining to her about something. She's like, Sarah, perception is reality. And you're right. Okay. So when we go into Envision, we have a whole different perception, you know, perception of who we are, how we want to project ourselves to the world, like how we want to interact with people. Um, and, you know, what we're engaging, which I love so much about Burning Man. Like when I first told you, like when I said, I'm, I'm hearing my dreams every night, you know, it's, we have this ability in this open way in festivals for some reason creates the container of, you know, this um, ability to check in with like the subconsciousness and the super consciousness and fantasy and, you know, going into acceptance and letting, you know, people dress up. It's like, you're always thinking about your festival outfit, you know, <laughs> and people dress up and they do makeup and they, maybe a little bit more inhib in inhibited than they inhibited, whatever, when, you know, when they're there, um, they're with their friends or meeting new people. It's this like whole exercise. And then we go back right to default world of feeling isolated. And, you know, that nice marketing slogan we all saw on TV of the army of one and that you're alone. Um, and I think people do come to festivals and feel alone sometimes. It's actually why I work at festivals because I do feel lonely if I'm not. Um, but that's my thing, you know, I feel left out. It's like, whatever. And so <laughs> I'm always working at festivals. Um, but it's also how I integrate into the community, right? And so people find their niche. And I think that's what happens is we become a super organism um, for uh, whatever set period of time, four days to a week, you know, or like tribal gathering in Panama is a few weeks. And so by becoming a super organism, um, we're kind of like, in permaculture, we teach that the forest is the the pattern of everything, of life. And within the forest, everything has its perfect space, its time, its function, right? That's niche. And when you're in this festival situation, I feel like you can kind of find your niche and you find what you're good at and you find what people appreciate you for and you can share. And, you know, when we go into our default worlds and back to our default jobs, we, we enter back into like the productivity machine, um, and, and we lose that sense of who we are and we don't feel appreciated for being who we are. And so I think when we step out of festivals, like, okay, so great. So we go to festival, we live in fantasy land in utopia, and then we go, you know, to, to our dystopian real lives. And, um, you know, for me, I, I left the States. That's not what I suggest for a lot of people. It's, I left the States for love. I left the States because I felt called to this place and because I had access and opportunity to do so. Not everybody has that, you know? And so I think like how we can bring this, that concept of, of unity and of the, the super organism together is just by trying your hardest to cultivate community in your bioregion first, you know, it's like, you have to try to connect with people. Um, 
and not just through social media and, and it's fun. Like I love social media. Don't get me wrong. It's how you stay in touch with people. It's whatever. But you know, we need human contact with each other. And that's what the festival also gives is like face to face human contact. Um, we don't get touched enough in positive ways. We have walls up, you know, we work in front of desks, we're in front of our computers. And while we're looking at people, it's different, you know, than being in someone's to get woo, being in someone's energy field, you know, and being in their heart space and looking, you know, into the, the windows of the soul, into someone's eyes and hearing their voice and smelling their skin and reaching out and touching them. It's, that's what I think needs to be cultivated first <laughs> when, when we're in our, in our default worlds, you know, and then I think that we're in such an amazing place to change. And like, you know, when you and me were kids you and I were kids, excuse me, like people asked us what we wanted to do. And the reality is we can't, who would we want to be when we grow up? But we can't ask children that anymore because there isn't just the own set of jobs. And like we can see in, in yourself and myself is like, we've created our own jobs. We've created our own way to, to, to get capital. And I'll go into that in a little bit with, with envision. And, and when we think about like value, um, and so I think that's also where people can, the life is a festival, like you can create your own place in the world and your own job in the world. And it's not just based around like how many dollars or euros or colonists are in your bank account. Um, and that's what I think festivals also bring is, you know, this, this, you know, we're rooted in permaculture with, within vision, but uh, within social permaculture, we talk about the eight forms of capital, uh, which are, you know, financial, biological, material, cultural, social, intellectual, experiential, and spiritual. And all of that is found within a festival environment. You know, it's like, sure, there's cash of some kind circulating around or whether it's like chips or RFID bands, like whatever, there's like this financial aspect to it because it's the reality that we live in. You know, it's a, a currency. Currency is energy of some kind, right? And so that also makes the festivals happen. Um, it's how I bought my computer to talk to you right now through my internet that I pay cash for. Right. Um, but what you also get the festivals with these other forms of capital, like biological capital is this human experience, you know, with envision in particular, we're biological capital of like, we're on the beach in this amazing location with all these trees that we've been planting around and monkeys, you know, at sunrise, like at the, at the rab set, you know, it's like, that's biological capital organic food is biological capital and like nourishing ourselves. And, you know, within the village, of course, there's all like the fun food vendors and delicious things that you can eat and try, whether it's like cacao or moringa and these like superfoods that you hear about, you know, to just like nourishing wholesome cuisine and the people who cook it, you know, and connecting with people that way, that's biological capital. Um, material capital is, is the resource, you know, it's like, okay, the material capital of, of envision is like the commerce that happens exchange of materials, you know, whether it's like, you know, your expensive pine cone or it's, you know, a material exchange of, of construction of, of the, the stages, you know, um, the cultural capital is that festival is a cultural, uh, a culture, you know, like when you go into festival culture, like I, I said, in the scene, like you probably know them because you and me, like we're, even though you're in San Francisco and I'm in Costa Rica, like we as, um, ascribe to the same culture, you know, the same foundation of like beliefs and like, you can be who you are, you know, as I 
you just followed me on Instagram. I followed you back. You know, <laughs> I could check you out and like, yeah, like we're in the same culture. Like we probably have a million friends in common, you know, which then leads into like the social capital that happens in festivals is like, you're meeting people, you're connecting, you're finding your lover, you're finding your partner, your kids are connecting with other people, different languages are being spoken. You're hearing different music, you know, like that's social capital that like enriches our lives, bring us into the experiential form of capital. Like I know, and this is what the, the clinic does is it actually takes the intellectual form of capital of book learning and studying from teachers into the experiential capital of like, I know that this works. I know that it doesn't work. You know, experience is legitimate. And it's actually one of my favorite reasons for um, teaching adults. Um, adult learners are so fun because we have so much to share with each other. And people who don't think they're teachers really are because your experiences are so valid, you know. And then the spiritual capital that someone gains out of festivals is like, being able to to feel connected to oneness and to the super organism and in these beautiful and sometimes harsh places that we do them connect with something bigger than ourselves, you know? Um, and so festivals like off, <laughs> off the mat, like out of the festival, like how do we bring this home? I think it's really looking to, to the eight forms of capital and how do I enrich my life in a way that isn't just the default world prescribed financial system or biological exploitation or the material form of extreme consumerism, you know? Wow. You've, you've offered so, so much specific information during this podcast. It's so wonderful. I feel like I'm going to really enjoy reviewing this episode and, and recognizing how, for example, the eight forms of capital apply to my own life or, or this idea of social permaculture, um, and certainly, uh, herbalism and the history of witchcraft. I, it's just such a wealth of knowledge. And, and furthermore, I will myself be at Envision this year. So I'm going to get a chance to return. I was there in 2015 and 2016, and this will be my first year back in, in a little bit. And, um, I'm so excited to check out, I'm actually going to be volunteering at the Zendo this year. So I'll be within, um, within that medical framework myself. And yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to get to go back and to get to experience, uh, some of these offerings firsthand in mm. Costa Rica at the end of next month. Yeah. Or, really, 30 days. We just did our 30 day, me, uh, social media post. <laughs> Wow. Well, 30 days yeah. and we'll, we'll actually get to meet in person because I don't think we've actually met in person. No, yet, so. we haven't. Though you look really familiar. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm around, <laughs> you know, uh, it's the, it's the festival world. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. well, well, sir, thank you so much for, uh, creating a festival life yourself and then moving into this incredible role of teacher and of someone who is teaching teachers and someone who is facilitating spaces for teaching because mm -hmm. we all are looking for amazing ways to level up our being and to support the earth and each other in this critical time in our human history. So I'm grateful for the time you spent talking to me today. I'm sure the listener has really gotten a lot out of it too. So thank you so much. Mm, thank you so much. And thank everybody listening for your time. It's a long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the format. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I will see you. I will see you at Envision. Sounds great. Thank you for joining us for the Life is a Festival podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes and leaving us a review letting us know what you thought. Or you can share it with your friends. 
please visit aimanarmstrong.com. That's E-A-M-O-N-A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G.com for more content about festival culture and personal growth. Have a great week.